Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you here this morning. On our last day of February, can you believe it's already the last day of February? Tomorrow is March, and then we are on to all kinds of things like 100 degree temperatures around the corner. But... We won't speak of that yet because today's going to be a beautiful day. 60 degrees, a nice like last winter feel, kind of feel here for us in Arizona. I know anybody who's from the Midwest or has family in the Midwest or even in Texas this year is probably laughing at the notion that 60 degrees could feel like winter weather, uh, but it sure certainly is for Arizona. So we're going to enjoy this last winter day and uh, move forward. But great, thank you for joining us this morning as we continue our series uh, called Getting Clarity in an Unclear World. We've been looking at the book of James for the past several weeks. And, uh, you know, this past week I came across a, uh, a, a study that was done uh, several years ago uh, looking at the top, temp- uh, the top temptations that Americans face, or at least they feel like they face in their lives. And as a part of this study, they did a survey on thousands of Americans, and they asked them basically, list the temptations that you feel like you encounter either often or sometimes. So I want to share a part of that list with you uh, here this morning. 60% of the people who responded said that worrying or being anxious was a temptation that they faced either often or sometimes. 55% said eating too much was a temptation for them. 44% said spending too much time on media. 35% said spending more money than they could afford. 26% said gossiping about others. 24% said being jealous or envious of others. 18% said viewing pornography. And 11% said abusing alcohol or drugs. So, Probably nothing too surprising about that list. I think really the only surprise for me as I read through that list is that uh, pornography, honestly, and, and alcohol and drugs were so lowly reported because we know from research that those numbers are probably much higher. But I guess it's a lot easier to admit that you worry uh, than that you, you know, view pornography or struggle with alcohol or drugs, even on an anonymous survey. So maybe we could add to this, like, lying on an anonymous survey about your temptations as one of those temptations, right? And then we could add judging people who take survey resi- Anyway, the list just goes on and on is the point, right? I think that's the, that wasn't necessarily interesting. The part that was more interesting to me is the two follow-up questions they asked after this. And one of the questions was, they asked if, if, if people tried to do anything specific to avoid giving in to temptation. And only 41% said that they did something to help them avoid falling into temptation, while 59% said no. And then the final question they asked, they asked them, why do you think you fall into temptation? You know what the number one answer was? At 50%, they said, I'm really not sure. I have no idea why I fall into temptation. Now, point that out. I think this is why a book like the book of James is so important for us to go through. Because one of the things that James has done since the very beginning of this book is help us see behind the curtain or behind the heart of why we do what we do, why we say what we say. Getting to that issue of why is it not only that we're tempted, but that we begin to follow through on temptations. We just came across, uh, we just came out of a chapter in chapter 3 where we looked at two pieces of that. James talked about the power of the tongue, the danger of words, and how. The words that we say often are an overflow, as Jesus would say, an overflow of our hearts so that we see what comes out of our hearts by the words often that we say. And then, of course, the second part of chapter 3, James addressed what was going on in the early church, and he called out two things, false wisdom versus true wisdom. Each one has its own way of thinking, approaching, and each one has its own fruit that it displays. 
James said that false wisdom, or what he calls demonic wisdom, displayed its fruit in things like strife and discord and disunity, while true wisdom exercised in the church community shows things like peace and righteousness and goodness and humility. So then based upon that, of course, James challenged his first century church readers to really look at the fruit of their church. Were they characterized by more of strife, discord, or disunity? Or would they look at the church and say that we are characterized more by goodness and righteousness, humility, and peace? And of course, that question is not just for those who originally received this letter 2,000 years ago, but it's for us to consider today as God's timeless word. Which one are we characterized by? False wisdom or true wisdom based on its fruit? This message this morning is called Drawing Near to God, which I'm guessing is the reason that most of us are here this morning, is that we came because we wanted to be a little closer to God maybe than we were when we walked in. And as we explore this today, I want to I, I remind us that yes, it's important as far as the fruit that we display, that's an important thing, but in the end, what this is really about and what James is really getting to from this pastoral perspective is guiding us closer to God. What does it mean to draw near to God? James is going to hit on that here in chapter 4 after we go through these words that are really kind of difficult to take in some ways. In fact, James chapter 4, I want to remind us, by the way, if I can, that James is approaching this particular section with grace and from a pastoral perspective, despite what the words at the surface level might actually communicate. Because as we read this, we're gonna see some of the harshest words that we see anywhere in the book of James. If you think, the, if you think James has been straightforward to this point and blunt this point, to this point, wait for what we're gonna to read today. This section blows all that stuff out of the water. In fact, it's probably one of the most difficult sections to digest in all the New Testament from this standpoint. But what we'll see in the end is that James is doing it from a loving and gracious position. And I've hesitated so far in this, in this uh, series to use the phrase tough love because it seems like low-hanging fruit at times and tough love has all kinds of different connotations to it and weird stuff. But if we're going to talk about tough love, this is tough love in the sense that it is tough. It's a little difficult to take at first, but it comes from a loving place in the end. And so with that being said, let's read through what James says in James chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 1 and continue through verse 12 this morning. James says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it said, God God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother and judges or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. But there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. 
but who are you to judge your neighbor? So I'm a little afraid to ask this question, but what jumps out to you as we read that passage? I mean, the things that typically jump out to us are probably the words, the harsher words that are communicated here. Phrases like, you adulterous people, a little bit shocking. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. I mean, these are the headlines that kind of take this section to us, and they're meant to do that. I mean, James is calling out these things to get our attention. But I want to be careful, although these may seem like the headlines, there is actually a headline in this that is much more important, and this is where James is drawing us to. And it's in verse 6 when James says this, but he gives more grace. That is, God gives more grace. And this is the focus of this passage, despite all that is kind of swirling around this statement here. We're going to dive into that a little bit more. But before we do, let's dig into a little bit about what is actually being said around this statement. Again, James points out, that what false wisdom does and the effects that false wisdom has. And he's not pulling out a hypothetical example. He's not saying, well, let's say that there was fighting going on in a church. He actually says, what is happening among you, in verse 1, the fighting and the quarrels that is taking place, which apparently is evident not only to James, but to those in the community, is because of this, the passions that are at war within you. And I think it's pretty amazing, and this is consistent with what James does and says throughout the book, but he draws this direct parallel between the war or the fighting that's going on inside of each individual, and then how that war or that fighting is actually being expressed in the church community among them. Again, helping us see the point that what is is fruit outside comes from inside. It's an expression of where our hearts lay. And James is addressing here a real problem then in the church. And it really makes sense when you think about then why he expresses this with such bluntness and really with such straightforward, what we might call even harsh words. Because would you rather have a church full of humble people or selfish people? I mean, think about it, right? Would you rather have a church full of people who are peace-loving or a church full of people who want to start fights all the time for selfish reasons? We said last week that humility is defined well as not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking about ourselves less. You know what a humble person is able to do because they don't think about themselves all the time? They're able to think about other people. They're able to think about the needs of other people. They're able to do what Scripture says, which is to place the needs of others above our own. Imagine a church and a community where everybody is humble and doing that together. It creates this beautiful picture of, I'm not worried about my needs, I'm meeting your needs, so your needs are being met. And somebody else is meeting my needs because they're humble towards me and so on and so forth. And you have a community that's meeting one another's needs but not worried about their own needs because their needs are being met by others. How much better is that than a bunch of people who are just out for themselves, who are always concerned about their preferences and how other people can serve them? In fact, a community that is built upon things like selfish ambition can't really even exist because quickly things begin to fall apart. Without sacrifice, without humility, without a focus on the common good in the community, things quickly fall apart. And it's interesting to see how James presents that parallel here. These are the wars or the passions that are going on in your heart. And he talks about really passion, but a temptation at the same time. And look, desire itself is not necessarily a bad thing, right? In fact, it's a good thing because God has put it in us. As human beings, God has given us desires and passions. It's part of who we are, being created in his image. But what James is really talking about here are the evil desires that begin to lead us 
through temptation, not only are we tempted, but we follow through on that temptation so that those evil desires are actually cultivated, they become sin, and then they become patterns of sin. We saw this earlier in the book of James as well. And without those passions being uncontrolled, it leads to a place where sin is not only present in our body, but it becomes something in our lives, but it becomes something that is present and permeated throughout an entire community. There's a difference between desire and acting on that desire. There's a difference between temptation and falling victim to that temptation. For instance, I might have a desire to have money, which might be a, which is basically a neutral desire, right? In fact, it might be a good desire because we need money to provide for our families and those kinds of things. But if my desire for money becomes too strong, it can become a temptation to be greedy. And when I become greedy, my desire for money actually leads me and begins to rule me. So that then I become tempted to do things like maybe steal money, or defraud someone, or do any other illegal things to gain money because greed has taken over, and greed now leads me instead of a proper perspective of stewardship. So, it's not wrong to have desires. It's, not, it's one thing to be tempted, but we all have a decision to make when it comes to those desires. Again, not all desires are evil, but when those desires are at war with one another, the godly desires and the desires of sin... We have to ultimately decide which one to respond to. And, the, and James is characterizing a church that is chaotic, that's divided, that's unjust. Really a church that looked just like the world around them. And in many ways, James is presenting this. If you, if you got a sense that this felt like an Old Testament prophet kind of judgment oracle, that's exactly where I think James is coming from. He's patterning this, especially that phrase, you adulterous people, after the Old Testament prophets. Which is really appropriate here because James was a Jewish Christian. We said earlier that the Old Testament is the only scripture right now, right? The book of James was probably the first New Testament book written chronologically. And so he's speaking to Jewish Christians who were familiar with how the Old Testament prophets spoke. So James, I think, is deliberately calling to our memory the Old Testament prophets. And what were the Old Testament prophets typically concerned about? They were concerned about God's people being God's people. So that they looked like God, that they lived out what God's character was into the world so that the other nations would look at God's people and say, these are, God's, these are Yahweh's people set apart and they look different from the way that we do things. And by that witness, they would be attracted to Yahweh above all the false gods that they worshipped. But of course, Israel fell into the trap of worshipping the other gods around them, wanting to be like the other nations, and so in the end they looked no different than the nations that were around them. This is the same thing that James is calling out. That was evidence of their idolatry, but also evidence of their adulterous spiritual nature. And that's exactly what James is calling out. You don't look any different than those who are around you. And you're supposed to be God's people. You're supposed to be people redeemed by Jesus. Now, it's one thing to go all Old Testament prophet on a church. But what is James's ultimate point here? Well, you may know in the Old Testament prophets that their message wasn't done when they just called out God's people or even proclaimed discipline or judgment on God's people. In fact, if you read through Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos, any of those Old Testament prophets, what you might see is that their message wasn't done until they talked about the possibility of hope, the promise of hope, and the promise of redemption that God would bring. In other words, that God would act to draw back his people to himself by his grace. This is exactly where James is taking us to also. 
All the rebukes, all the strong words may get the headlines, but again, in verse 6, James points us to the fact that God gives grace. Now, notice there's a phrase there that's really important. In verse 6, James starts that phrase with, but he. In other words, but God. And here we run into one of the most powerful phrases in all of Scripture. This phrase, but God, happens over 40 times in the Bible. We see one of them right here in James chapter 4, verse 6. And here's why this phrase is so wonderful. The phrase, but God, typically describes for us a time when God steps into a situation, when God steps into human history and changes the course of that thing forever. So we see things that are happening, whether it's a, whether it's a, a, a judgment situation, whether it's a, a time of captivity, whether it's even the death of Jesus, but God steps in and does something amazing and changes the course of that thing to save the day by his grace and his power. The first but God happened in Genesis chapter 8. It's in verse 1, when God was judging the earth through the flood during Noah's time. And we're told in that place, but God remembered Noah. And as a result, God brought an end to the flood. He dried out the flood and allowed the ark to land on safe, dry land. Since that time, Abraham, Joseph, David, Jesus all experienced but God moments that took place where God showed up to change the course of their lives and really the course of human history by his grace. And in these but God moments, God rescues, God saves, God protects, God raises from the dead all by his gracious initiative. And so when we get back to James and we see James drop in this phrase, but God here, God gives more grace. There is significance in this phrase because in the midst of all this chaos that the church was going through, in the midst of all this double-mindedness, this discord, the false wisdom, all these things really that have been set up for the past three chapters, it almost seems like James has spent three and a half chapters talking about all the things that are going wrong in that church, and then we get to verse six, and the but God moment happens, and it, tur- it turns everything on this idea that God gives more grace. The double-mindedness, the evil and slanderous and divisive speech, all these things have been building to this point where it almost seemed like the church was hopeless, that the tide of chaos and sin is unbreakable, that the discord and disunity that was happened was unrepairable, the double-mindedness, the evil desires, all these things he's called up were so widespread that there was nothing that could save the day until God's powerful grace shows up on the scene. But God gives more grace. So James is not giving up on them because he's well aware of the fact that God has not given up on them either. Instead, into this mess of a situation where the people are called spiritual adulterers, where they've turned their backs on God, James proclaims that God gives more grace. That God's grace is more powerful than all of this mess and that in the midst of all the junk that is happening here, it's not just mere sentiment, but it's a promise that God gives more grace, which then propels us into verse 8 encouraging us to draw close to God because he has drawn close to us by his grace. I think this is important to realize because it's easy, again, to get caught up in all that's happening in this chapter and almost feel like verse 6 is just kind of like a speed bump on the way to complete verbal annihilation by James, right? I mean, he starts it out, and then there's a little grace speed bump, and then we just keep going and plowing through, because even after he says this, right, he tells us to cleanse our hands, to purify our hearts, to be wretched and mourn and weep and all these other things. But if we're not careful, we miss the point in all of this. And the point that James is driving us to is the gracious nature of God. You know, there's sometimes a false dichotomy between 
uh, what is often called truth and grace. In other words, there's a false division between truth and grace sometimes in the way that we think about it. And what we typically mean is that truth is harsh and truth is mean, but grace is nice and forgiving. But I think what we need to remember, especially according to Scripture, is that truth is simply just what is true. And there is nothing more true than the grace of God. Where the grace of God is as true as anything else, I should say. So all that James is addressing here in chapter 4 is true. Sin is ugly. And sin causes destructive things to happen in our world. But, and God judges sin. But it's also true that God's grace is more powerful than our sin. In other words, in the Bible, truth is not complete until the grace of God answers judgment. Truth is not truth until the good news of the gospel is really good news that does not leave us in judgment, but brings us grace through Jesus' salvation work. And I think one of the things we should take from the book of James, honestly, is how well James writes this book. Um, we can see already that we know that he has a, a wealth of knowledge in Scripture. He has a way of kind of communicating that is very articulate. He uses really great word pictures, whether it's, you know, our lives are like a flower that fades overnight, or the Bible is like a mirror that holds up to us who we should be and what God's word looks like and who we are in the gospel, and even something like the tongue being a fire and all that imagery, right? Those are all great things that, but one of the best things I think that I'm impressed by as I read the book of James is how James so effectively joins all of these themes together. And you see it here in James chapter four, how he joins the presentation of God's judgment of sin and God's grace and how they go together in the gospel and at the cross of Jesus. On the one hand, we could say that this chapter in particular is one of the harshest chapters handed down in the New Testament. But at the same time, it's also one of the most grace-filled passages, too. And it goes back to the but God statement, but again, it pushes us forward into verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to, near to you. Not only is God gracious in the effect of forgiving our sins, but when grace has its effect, God's grace pursues us and draws us to himself. Now, I mentioned earlier how grace and truth go together. I want to mention three things quickly about why grace and truth, or what is true about God's grace, and how important this is for us to grasp hold of as, as James talks about God's grace. First of all, it is true that God's grace is in God's nature. God is a merciful and gracious God. It is in his character to be this way. You may remember when Moses met with God on Mount Sinai. Um, the first time, he received the Ten Commandments from God, and he goes down the mountain, and by the time he makes it down to the mountain, he realizes that the people have built a golden calf, and they're worshiping the golden calf, and they're essentially breaking the first two most important commandments before Moses can even get down the hill with the commandments. In other words, the ink is still wet on these tablets, right? And the people are already breaking the first two commandments. And so Moses gets so upset and so angry at them, he breaks the tablets, storms back up the mountain, Meets with God again, and he says, have you seen what these people have done? And God, don't leave us. And you may remember God's response. Listen to God's response. In the midst of all that, it can't get much worse than this. Obvious adultery, spiritual adultery, spiritual idolatry, and God says this to Moses. In the midst of Moses and all his rage, God says this. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He's not saying that God, that God is being gracious and merciful. He says the Lord is gracious and merciful. That grace is not something that operates outside of God's character as he kind of grabs it and extends it to us, but grace comes out of the very nature and character of God because God is gracious and merciful. God's grace then draws us closer to God, another truth about God's grace. God has always been gracious. It's in his nature. It's in his character. That doesn't change. But because of our sin then, God's grace becomes visible in sending Jesus to redeem and to reconcile us to himself, to draw us from far and separate, and to bring us near to himself through Jesus. Ephesians 2.13 says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then finally, God's grace glorifies God. There's really two big reasons for this. One reason is that God is glorified whenever his character is displayed. So we know that God is sovereign, He's glorified when his sovereignty is seen. He's glorified when his love is seen. He's glorified when his holiness is seen. He's glorified when his justice is seen. And he's glorified when his grace and his mercy is seen. Secondly, second reason that God's grace glorifies God is that God is glorified when his creation is redeemed and made right, which starts with humanity. In Romans chapter 8, it says this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And there's a true thing in, in here with, that, that the, the, the sons, the children of God, as a result of their redemption as the head of creation, creation itself then becomes redeemed. And to the degree that creation represents how God originally designed it to glorify him, God is glorified even more in his work of grace in us and in the world. And he gives grace for all of these reasons. It's his faithful response to sin in the life of a believer. And because all of that is true, then we are told what to do with that, to draw near to God. Look, everything that God does in his grace is so that we would draw near to him. That's its purpose. One of the tests, in fact, of how well you've understood God's grace is what you do when you sin. What happens when you recognize sin in your life? Does it cause you first to draw closer to God or to run away from God? Because what we're told here, this is the point of James calling all of this out, is he says, if you understand the grace of God, this is what is going on among you. It needs to change. Your only hope is the grace of God, and God calls you back to himself. And so when you recognize sin, it's not to run away from God, but it's to run to God, to the throne of grace, to the throne of mercy in times of need. Now, James then said, in doing this, we're to submit ourselves to God and resist the devil. Now, if you're asking what it takes to submit to God, what does that mean? James then rattles off all of these examples of what it looks like. He talks about how we to cleanse our hands, how we're to be in a place where we purify our hearts. But before all of that, he talks about humbling ourselves in confession and repentance. And I think here's one thing to remember is that as we come to God in confession and repentance, we remember that it is God who has initiated grace first. And so many times... Um, Many times I know that when people pray prayers of confession, they will ask God to forgive them of their sin. Um, let me encourage you by just reminding you that those in Christ, those sins have already been forgiven. 
And so when we confess, what we're doing is we're agreeing with God about our sin and agreeing with God also about the provision of grace that has been provided for us in Jesus Christ. And that gives us the confidence, by the way, this is why this matters, it gives us the confidence, by the way, to actually truly repent because we rest upon the grace of God as a homecoming. Not as a barrier that is there anymore, but drawing closer to God because he calls us already by his grace. Those things have already been forgiven. And then in the last part of what we read, as evidence of repentance then, James calls out this aspect of brothers judging one another and speaking against each other in those last two verses that we read, verses 11 and 12. And what he's calling out essentially is that for those who show true fruit of repentance and a true understanding of God's grace, it makes no sense for you to then sit in a place of judgment against your brother. And he paints a picture of basically saying that those who understand how much they have been forgiven in the gospel are, again, much less likely to be people who sit in judgment. And when they do, it's either because they don't understand how bad their sin really is or how great God's grace and mercy really is. They can say all day, I'm a sinner and I'm forgiven by God's grace. But words can be cheap at times. And deeds often show more effectively and more deliberately what it is that we actually believe about God's grace. It reminds me when, about when Jesus was hanging out with people that the Pharisees had decided were beyond God's grace. And they accused him of violating God's law for doing so. You remember that Jesus confronted the Pharisees and he said that he came for those who knew that they were sick. He didn't come for those who didn't think that they needed a doctor, which were the self-righteous Pharisees. In Mark chapter 2, he says this in verse 15, And as he reclined at the table of his, in his house, that is Jesus, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who were well have no need of a physician but those who were sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know that statement right there at the end? I came not to call the righteous, but sinners is a wonderful statement. It's, it, there's a little bit of sarcasm in it as well. right? Jesus is saying, in this masterful statement, he both affirmed his grace for all people and condemned those who were blinded by their own pride and self-righteousness. Those of you who think you are righteous have no need of grace, so I didn't come for you. I came for those who realize that they need the grace of God, the tax collectors and the sinners whom he was sitting with. Now for the Christian whom James is addressing here in this letter, first and foremost, when ongoing sin happens in our lives, and it will happen, grace given by God and received in faith means, of course, that all sin is forgiven. And when we operate in light of that grace, what God calls us to is to be near. So that when James calls out all these behaviors, like dirty hands that have done sinful things, hearts that are impure which need to be purified, double-mindedness that has taken pleasure in worldly values, which finds joy in things like partiality and pride and selfish ambition and self-seeking status at the expense of others, and all these other things that James is calling out in this letter. There is a calling back to a seeking of God as God seeks us. Draw near to God, so there is a two-way street that happens here. There is God's initiative and effort which then allows us to make the effort on our behalf to be closer to God, to draw near to Him. There's a responsibility and a calling in that as well. Dallas Willard says this, 
While grace is, not, grace is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. Paul encourages us in the same way to work out our salvation in Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You know, earlier in this section, James condemns the approach that goes to God and asks with wrong motives. And so we might ask ourselves, what are those wrong motives that James is condemning? We could probably make a list as wide as this stage about wrong motives. But at the same time, I think more of this is like rethinking about what we really expect prayer to look like. And think about it. Prayer is God taking the initiative and inviting us into a conversation. And he says, come and talk to me. I hear you and I want to be with you. The sovereign God of the universe, your creator, says to you, I hear you, Steve, and I want to be with you. He says, I hear you, Sue. He says, I hear you, Michael. He says, I hear you, Uncle. Come and be with me, and I want to talk with you. That's what prayer is, and to take that invitation and to say, God, that's great, but what I really want is what you can get for me, is what James calls out as adulterous prayer. He says, you ask with wrong, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. It's using God to get something that you really love more than God himself. Now, if you did that with your spouse, you probably wouldn't have a marriage for very long, right? I mean, imagine this for a minute. You come home on a Friday night, your wife's all dressed up, ready to go, because it's date night. Reservations have been made at her favorite restaurant, and you come in the door and you say, you know what, I know this is date night for us, sweetheart, but what I'd really like you to do is if you could call up your friend for me, I'd really like to go to dinner with her instead tonight. How well would that go over? This is exactly what James is pointing out here. Is that our right response to be to sh- it should be to seek God with the right motives, and those right motives are the ones which draw us closer to God. And those can be all kinds of different prayers. They can even be petitions where we're relying on the provision and the fatherhood of God to provide for us. But at the same time, they are prayers that, whatever those prayers may look like, the motive of them should be to draw us closer to God. Take a look at verse 5 real quick. That says again this phrase, God yearns with jealousy for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Now that's a little bit of a difficult phrase to understand, especially in the Greek, and it's translated all kinds of different ways, but I think the point ultimately is this, that God is jealously yearning to draw you near, to transform us by his grace. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, a chapter before the one that we just read about working out our salvation, Paul says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He is faithful to do it, and he wants to do it in you. He wants to do it in us. He wants nothing more than that for you. And the jealousy, by the way, that James mentions is a reflection of the fact that God is the only one who is worthy of our praise and our affection, of our ultimate praise and affection. It is good that God is jealous because what God is doing is acting out on what belongs to him and we belong to him. And so he is jealous for that spirit that is in us because it belongs to him. And he continues as a result to draw us and to woo us by his grace and his powerful love. 
As we close this morning, I want to read to you a reflection from John Piper that John Piper wrote that reflects on this aspect of God's powerful love and grace for us. He says this, you know, sometimes we joke and say about marriage, the honeymoon is over, but that's because we are finite. We can't sustain a honeymoon level of intensity and affection. We can't foresee the irritations that come with long-term familiarity. We can't stay as fit and as handsome as we were back then. We can't come up with enough new things to keep the relationship that fresh. But God says his joy over his people is like a bridegroom over a bride. He is talking about honeymoon intensity and honeymoon pleasures and honeymoon energy and excitement and enthusiasm and enjoyment. Some great alliteration in there, by the way. He is trying to get into our hearts what he means when he says he rejoices over us with all his heart. And add to this, that when with God the honeymoon never ends. He is infinite in power and wisdom and creativity and love. So he has no trouble sustaining a honeymoon level of intensity. He can foresee all the future quirks of our personality and has decided he will keep what is good for us and change what isn't good for us. He will always be as handsome as he ever was and will see to it that we get more and more beautiful forever. And he is infinitely creative to think of new things to do so that there will never be boredom for the next trillion ages of millenniums. Wonderful. You know, my, my grandpa died about a month ago, 90 years old as a result of cancer. And this Saturday, I'll be officiating his funeral. And so I've been thinking over the past week, reflecting over his life and his legacy, thinking to myself, what am I going to say about my grandfather? There's so many things that I could say. He was truly a great man. But one of the things that came to me almost immediately is this practice that my grandfather would have of speaking to God audibly and singing to God audibly kind of on his own at just random times throughout the day whenever you'd be around him. And when he said those things, and he, you know, he wasn't you know, preaching sermons or anything, but he would say things like, thank you, Jesus, and, and praise you, Lord. And he would just say things kind of under his breath, but audibly. So you could hear him. And then he would sing hymns to himself, pieces of hymns just walking around. And when he said those things, it was almost like there was nobody else in the room and he was talking directly to God. And he said it at all, I say that because he said it at all kinds of different places. He said if there was 20 people in a room, he would say it if it was just you and him watching one of his old Western movies, right? One of his favorite Western movies. And I remember thinking to myself when I was a kid, he used to scare me when he'd say it. Because he said it with so much conviction, it felt like he thought Jesus was right there in the room with him. So I felt like I was missing something. I could look around for Jesus, like, is Jesus actually here? Am I missing it? And it used to creep me out, actually. And then as I grew a little older in my faith, I realized, and I began to appreciate, where it was coming from. Is that he is a man who would practice this kind of thing his entire life. Drawing near to God, drawing near to God, drawing near to God, until it felt like, Jesus was with him everywhere he went to such a degree that he could talk directly to him and not care about anything else in the room at the moment. That's one of the legacies my grandfather left for me and for those of us who got to see that happen. He was a guy who understood that God had drawn near to him, had, had drawn near to him by his grace. And he was calling him to draw near to God. And so I pray this morning that you would be encouraged by this. This is a really tough passage to read, but realizing that the gem is right in the middle of it. The calling is right in the middle of it. 
God has drawn near to you. He has done everything to bring you back to himself. And so draw near to him as he invites you by his grace. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed. Of course, the phrase amazing grace is something that at times is so cliche, but it is true. There is nothing more amazing than the grace that you pour out in our lives. It's confounding, it's confusing at times. Sometimes we have a tough time getting our heads around it. But it's a part of your character and your nature. So we thank you that you are good and merciful and gracious towards us. And we pray, Lord, that because we know that, that where we need to confess, where we need to repent, where we need to have our hearts changed, that we would be like children who come to our Father open-handed, saying, Lord, take from me whatever it is that you need to take from me and give to me what I know you are willing to give to me by your grace and mercy. We pray that we would understand truly what it means to come to you with motives that are godly. That we would be able to get the most out of what it means to have a relationship with you. That our highest treasure, our highest portion would be in the time that we get to spend just knowing you and being closer to you. Knowing the God who has created us, who loves our souls, and who has redeemed us. There is no higher calling and no greater joy than that. And we thank you that because of your great love and mercy that you made it possible for us through great sacrifice. And Lord Jesus, we praise you as the one who is our Savior King, who sits at the right hand of the Father even now interceding for us and making a way for us to enter into the throne room because of your grace and mercy. Because of forgiveness. Because of eternal life won on our behalf. That you have reconciled us by your cross. And so it's in your name that we pray this morning. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Thank you, guys. Did you all notice that we got new speakers in here? No? Did you, did you see them or did you hear them? I hope you heard them. I hope you heard the difference a little bit. We have new speakers. We've been working on this for months, and uh, Aaron's done a great job in getting all this together. We're thankful for that God's provided, thankful for, for Aaron's work, as well as guys like Matt and Nick, your work on this, getting this all set up. We have still some work to do, so it'll sound better in weeks to come, but uh, at the same time, we're grateful to have it, grateful that God's provided it for us. This week, I pray that you would find God's grace pursuing you everywhere you go and that you would be even more sensitive to it by the Spirit as you move through your week. Um, one of those things that we get to do with you as we join with you is pray for you. And so we have prayer cards that are located at the table as you leave this morning back by those doors. And if you have anything that you would like us to pray for you about, to join with you in prayer, maybe it's something in your own life, family member, something you're facing, something a friend's facing, whatever it may be, 
anything that you would like us to pray for, write it on that prayer request card and drop it in one of the uh, offering, bas- or offering stands, I should say, as you leave here this morning. We make sure that we pray over that as a staff, as a prayer team, and as an elder team every week, and we look forward to uh, joining with you in the privilege of praying with you and praying for you. So thank you for being here, guys. Great to see you. Great to see you again. Thank you for enjoying your last day of February with us. Have a great week. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you this week as you go. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.